0: Let me pray as we consider this passage of Scripture. Father, again, we come to you in prayer, and it's good for us to do that because we need you. And so we ask that you would speak through your word powerfully. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the remarkable things about the Bible and something that has really stood out to me as we've been working through Genesis is just how much this whole story coheres. It holds together so tightly I mean, think about it. It's written over thousands of years by a variety of authors, a variety of genres. There's poetry. There's history. There's uh, wisdom literature. There's song. There's letters. Gospel. There's a whole new genre that was created by the Scriptures. Um, so, and yet all of it tells a single story. We, we quoted Herman Bovink last week who said that the the content of all of God's revelation, the Scriptures, but not just the Scriptures, also how God has revealed Himself through what He's made. General revelation is what theologians call it. The content of what God has made, what He's spoken to us through His prophets, and what He has said through the Word made flesh, Jesus. All of His revelation, the content, Bob says, is grace. Grace is central to what God is communicating to us. His creation, general revelation, is gracious in in that it preserves us as, as human beings. It sustains us. And then the scriptures teach us how we can be redeemed, preserved in that way. And it's hard to believe. It's really hard to believe. In fact, we don't get there apart from God's revelation. If you look at belief in in, in a good and gracious God, you can trace it all back to God's revelation to Abraham. Whether it's Islam, whether it's Judaism, whether it's Christianity, it all goes back to God's revelation of... On our own, we think of the gods as being like Marvel characters. They're they're like us, just stronger and more powerful. The Babylonians, for example, they, they believe that creation... How did we get here? The Babylonians said it was a war of the gods and the slain gods, their blood fell down to the earth and seeded the earth and up popped creation. Creation is nothing more than the result of violence and chaos, the chaos of war. And look, fast forward, you know, six thousand years or whatever. And, and, and mo- our, our modern world says the same story, Right. The world is nothing more than the result of violent, chaotic forces, natural forces that have given rise to everything that is. Christianity says something different. Creation is gift. It's grace. It speaks to us of God's goodness. And then God's word to us speaks to us of his goodness. We've been exploring what grace means the last couple of weeks. And now we're in our third part of the three-parter, Grace's Wiles. And as we watch what God is doing in this Joseph story and with this family of faith, we're seeing how grace has the power to to change things, to, to redeem the world, to change everything, to build a new creation. We're going to continue that today. This story, this Joseph story is a little nugget, a little shadow of the broader story that God is working out in Genesis. Yes, but also in the whole scripture. It's all beginning here. God is giving us like a little micro uh, story. He's inserting it in saying, this is what I'm doing across time. It's a story that we're a part of. So we're going to kind of consider that this morning. Two points. Judah's graciousness and Joseph's graciousness. Those are the two points. So first we're going to look at Judah's graciousness in this story. Now, I know not everybody's been here for the last few weeks so we've got to do a little background work just to bring everybody up to speed as best we can Joseph the family of faith God has promised big blessings to bless the whole world through this family but the family is is just filled with division and strife tension and it's really it's, it comes to a boiling point with Jacob's children and uh, Joseph is is the doted upon the favorite the son of Uh, Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, and and he gets the inheritance and Joseph has these dreams as represented by the colorful coat. And Joseph gets these dreams that all of his brothers will bow before him and he flaunts these dreams. And his brothers who have not received the same kind of love that Joseph has received can't stand him for it. And so they decide that they're going, going to kill him. They throw him in a pit and they callously eat their meal as they're trying to figure out how they're going to destroy him. He's just down there in the bottom of the pit. And then Judah says, let's not kill him. Let's sell him as a slave and see what becomes of his dreams. So they sell him to a slave and they think we're done. And off he goes. And Joseph lands in Egypt. He's a slave for a few years. And then he's wrongfully convicted of of a crime he he didn't commit. He was was convicted of, of raping Potiphar's wife. So he's thrown into prison. And then he's there for more than a decade. And then in this stunning turn of events, he's lifted up to be the prime minister of the whole world. And now he is, I mean, the best way to say it is he's extending salvation to the whole world. He's he's, he's feeding the whole world during this famine. And he's the one distributing the food. And guess who comes up to him a few weeks ago? In our passage, his brothers, the brothers that left him for dead, that sold him as a slave. So what is he going to do? They're actually bowing before him in complete. He has complete power over them. What do you do to the people that abused you, that harmed you when they're bowing at your feet? Well, what Joseph does is he creates this elaborate ruse. It's not entirely clear where exactly he's going with it. But this morning we see and he's kept He keeps asking these brothers about this younger brother that didn't show up. And he, he throws him in prison, leaves him there for three days. He leaves Simeon in prison and says, the only way to get this guy back, Simeon, is to bring your younger brother. I want to see your younger brother. And so the brothers go back home and they eat the grain that they have. And Jacob says, we need more grain. And, and Judah says, dad, remember, they, you, I have to take Benjamin if you want to go back. The, the, the Lord, the man, he wants to see Benjamin. And so they bring Benjamin back. And and Joseph he, he they you know they think they're going to they also had money in their bags so they think that they're they're guilty and they're going to get maybe their heads chopped off. They don't know exactly what's going to happen. And he, they come back and the steward invites them into Joseph's house. He sits them at a table. He sits them in birth order, which is like incorrect because they don't they don't know who he is. And and he brings out food to all the brothers. And he gives five times the portion to little Benjamin, Rachel's other son. Think about that. This is the other son that's been, that's been treated as a favorite. And Joseph's bringing like just loads and loads of food to him and being like, you know, he's probably putting a little napkin in his shirt and saying, you enjoy this. We got a little something special for you. And kind of looking around at the other brothers. He's wanting to see, he's wanting to discern. What, where, where, where's the heart of these brothers? Are they still the same? And here's what he sees. The brothers together, they eat, they drink, and they're married together. They're enjoying one another's company. They are changed, it appears. So that's where we left off. Now, um, and, and uh, so there's your recap. Now, what Joseph tells the steward, his servant, he says... I want you to put silver in their bags again, money. And I want you to put my silver cup in the youngest one's bag. And so the steward does that. So off the brothers go the next morning. They're grained up. They're ready to go. And the steward leaves, tracks them down with an entourage, I'm sure, and says, what have you done? You've taken money and you've taken a silver cup as they're leaving. And the brother said, no, why, why would we do that? We remember, we return the money that was in our, that somehow miraculously got in our sacks the first time. We return that to you. We're not thieves. Why would we do that? They're so sure of their innocence that at verse 9, let's look at what they say. Whoever has the cup can die. We're, we're, we're innocent. And so the steward, Joseph's servant, begins to search. Starts with the oldest. And he ends with the youngest. And guess where the silver cup is? Benjamin's sack. So Judah, and at this point, Judah steps up. He jumps in. Remember the courage that he showed his father? He said, look, father, I know that you do not want to send Benjamin, but we must. If we're going to live, we must send him. And Judah said this, "I, I will do everything within my power to get Benjamin back if it means my life for his. That's what I'm going to do. And so the grace of God, and we got, we, got to, we got to remember too, Judah, really quickly. We're not going to go into it because we went into it quite a bit last week. But Judah was the one who planned to send Joseph in the first place. He's calloused. He's numb. He's raising these wicked sons. He's, he's, he's fornicating with prostitutes who turn out to be his daughter-in-law. That's Remember that story? But she convicts him. She convicts him of his sin. And he's pricked, to, he's cut to the heart, and he emerges a gracious man. And since that point, Judah is different. And he's already said to his father, "My life for Benjamin. I'm going to sacrifice myself if it comes to that." And now he's about to walk the talk. Look at verse fourteen. They bring them back to Joseph's house because remember they stole these things. It's believed. They're maintaining their innocence. And Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. He was still there. Verse 14. They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed have you done? Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? Right. And he's been showing them that through the birth order thing. Right. I mean, they're they're thinking this guy's this guy knows stuff because he's like doing these incredible things. Don't you know that I can practice divination, Joseph says to them? And Judah says, what what can we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. See what he says? He admits guilt. Now, I believe he's not admitting to the guilt of the silver and the silver cup because they've maintained their innocence on that matter. I believe he's, he's confessing to the guilt of the evil act they did to Joseph. We're guilty before God. We're guilty. We did an awful thing. In our past. And look at what Joseph says, verse 17. Joseph says, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose the hand the cup was found shall be my servant. The rest of you go in peace to your father. See hear what Joseph says? The one thing that can't happen is about to happen. The one goal, the one objective for daddy Jacob Get Benjamin back. And who's the one person that Joseph says, I want to stay and be my servant forever? Benjamin. Benjamin. It's the one thing they can't let happen. So what is Judah going to do? Look at verse 18. Judah goes to Joseph and says, My Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. And then he he explains he says Lord you have you asked if we had a brother you asked us to bring our brother and we did we brought him we had to get food and then look at look at verse 27 he says then your servant my father said to us so so they, they they're telling he's recounting the story of when uh, they're leaving, and Judah says, we have to bring Benjamin. And Jacob says to them in response to that, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One has left me, Joseph. And I said, surely he's been torn to pieces. This is Jacob talking, Uh, or he's recounting Jacob's words. I've never seen him since. If you take Benjamin from me, And harm happens to him. You will bring me down to Sheol, my gray hairs. I will die from devastation of losing precious Benjamin. And so Judah says, look, this is what our father has said. We can't return without Benjamin. It will devastate our father. It will kill him. I gave him my word that I would give my life for his. Take me for Benjamin. That's what Judah is saying. Now, this is really significant. At the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob is going to pronounce a blessing upon all of his sons, a word, a parting on all of his sons. And what he's going to say about Judah is that the scepter will not depart from Judah. Judah is the kingly line of Israel. The scepter is the, the ruling staff. What Jacob says is that the ruling staff of the people of Israel, of Jacob's descendants, will not depart from Judah. And what we're seeing, here, what Genesis is showing us here, is the king that Israel needs, the type of king. Right. This is the type of king. Judah is being the kind of king that we all long for. A king who takes his power, who, take, who, who lays his life out there, in sacrifice for another. He's extending himself for others. And, and notice, he's laying his life down for the undeserving. Look, did you see how he recounted the story? What Jacob said to him? These, what he says Jacob said to him? These are words that wound. Look at verse 27 again. Look at what Jacob tells Judah. Judah. You know that my wife bore me two sons. You hear that? Now he's got twelve sons, but it's like he's oblivious. Jacob's oblivious. The the ten other sons—they're not even sons. He doesn't even count them as sons. I have one wife. Her name is Rachel. There's that Leah person. I don't, and then there's a couple concubines. But Rachel's my wife, and we have two children. And you've got, to, we've lost one, Joseph. You've got to bring Benjamin back. Do you, do you hear the Can you imagine the pain of Judah hearing that from his father? His father's not loved him, nor his ten brothers. That's what created all this strife to begin with. But look, Judah is, is changed. Judah is being gracious toward the undeserving, his father. And his brother, Benjamin, who received all the love and all the attention and all the doting and all the things that every every son wants from a father. We're seeing here what a king needs to be, right? That's what that's what this this passage is showing us, the the type of king that not just Israel needs, but the whole world needs. I mean, this is an anticipation of Jesus, the Lion of Judah, who extends his, his life, not just for an undeserving father and brother, but for an undeserving world, he pours himself out. And this is not how kings act. Right? Our rulers are corrupt. In fact, the best form of government that we can kind of come up with as human beings is one that... that its strength is, is to the extent that it can spread power across different branches or departments so that no one person gets too much power. Like you, can't, you, have to, you can't give a single person too much power because we're selfish. We're corrupt. The more power we get, the more we want to use it for ourselves. That's not the king that we need. We need a king like Judah who's pouring himself out. We chose the name King's Cross Church. Because we believe that those two words may may best summarize the whole Bible. The story is about a kingdom. The Bible story, the story that we're all a part of, is about a, a, a kingdom that was lost, the kingdom of God, but that is being regained through a king, the Lord Jesus. And how does he conquer the world, build his new creation? It's surprising. It's not in power. It's in weakness. The cross. It's the king's cross. It's so unexpected. It's so beautiful. It's what Judah is doing right here. You drill down to the heart of creation, right? You find one who pours himself out. You you find the Lord, right? And that's that's what Bobbing says. Everything that he reveals is grace and gift. So that's Judah's graciousness. Now I want us to see Joseph's graciousness. Joseph is about to lose it. He's about to lose control. That's actually what it says. He's about to lose control. Now, think about this. Joseph has been in total control. He has been, uh, he's been the man with the plan, more so than all of Egypt. That's why he got promoted to the position, because he had a plan, and his plan is working very well. The whole world, he's, he's controlling the, the life source, the food of all the world. He's been in control of these brothers He's been kind of moving them around like little chess pieces. You guys need to do this. You need to do this. He's about to lose it. He's about to lose all control. Look at verse chapter 45, verse 1. Joseph could not control himself before all who stood by him. And he cries out, make everyone go out from me. And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. Tells all, all the people in the room that are not his brothers, get out, get out! It's about to get ugly in here. Go! And so they go, and then he starts just losing it, weeping. You know, his brothers are thinking, "What's going on? <laughs> uh, did Judas' speech strike a chord? Is he very was he sensitive? Did he say something in there that maybe moved him, or is he this guy like totally unstable?" And our life is in his hands. Like, is this good? Is this bad? What's going on? Is he about to kill us? And then he reveals himself. Verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. They were dismayed at his presence. They're in complete shock. So... What is Joseph going to do? That's the question. That's the question of the moment in their minds. What is he going to do? What is he going to do? Is he going to kill us? Is he going to smite us? Look at what he does. Verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 5. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. He says, Come near. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry. I'm not here to harm you. In fact, God brought me here to save you, to preserve you. He extends grace. It's so powerful. This past week, Nathan Carroll shared a familiar story, probably to many of us. It's a bestseller, uh, they made it into a major motion picture. Uh, it's the story of Louis Zamperini. In, uh, in the title of the book and movie, is Unbroken. And you, you, you probably are familiar with the story, but Louis was, a, was, a, was an Olympian runner who was drafted into World War, World War II, stranded, plane crashed, stranded at sea for nearly 50 days, surviving, washed up upon the shore, upon the Japanese shore, and, and taken as a prisoner by Japanese soldiers. And there he was beaten, starved, mocked, for years. And he came home from that experience and was had serious trauma. His body was was not the same, couldn't even run because of the beatings. He was uh, he, he was severely wounded, and he, he alcohol was his answer. And then his wife encouraged him to go to a Billy Graham crusade. And he did, and he, he converted to faith. God's grace grabbed him and he became a Christian. And he returned to Japan and met those prisoners who beat him, starved him, mocked at him. He lines them up. They're they're lined up before him. And he embraces each one of them. He says, I forgive you. he moves to the next one and hugs him. I forgive you. Goes on down the line. And then he explains God's grace to him, his forgiveness in Christ. He shares with them the gospel. And all of them convert to Christianity, but, but one So moved, it's so so shocking. They don't even believe it. He comes to embrace them, and you can imagine them tightening up, wondering, is he gonna stab me in the back? But no, he comes to them in love. It's so powerful. And it's what Joseph does here to his abusers, his brothers. Now, the question is: how can a person do this? How can you extend that kind of love to the people that have abused you? And the answer is. He's interpreting the matter from a, from a uniquely powerful plane. He's interpreting this whole situation, not from an earthly frame, but from a heavenly frame, from God's eye view. That's how we see what God is doing. I mean, isn't, isn't that how Louis did it, right? Zamperini? All of a sudden, God, God's gospel, the good news of Christ, lifts him up to a heavenly plane, and he begins to see God as this Gracious God who extended mercy to him, which then allowed him to extend mercy to the Japanese uh, soldiers that harmed him. And that's what is happening with Joseph. Look at what he says, verse 6. For the famine has been in the land these two years, there's still five years to go. There will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me to you, or before you, to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. So it wasn't you who sent me here. It was God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is God's doing. That's what Joseph tells them. Bruce Waltke, a commentator on the book of Genesis, says this. He says, from a worm's eye view, the Joseph narrative reads like a nightmare, a cacophony of outrageous excesses unjustly inflicted upon him. A rational conclusion that it is all absurd from his perspective could have made him a cynic or a nihilist. You look at the situation from the ground of Joseph and you think, from a worm's eye view, you think this is is awful. It's just a cacophony of bad experiences. It's horrible, it's a nightmare. Even if he's elevated... There's still the bitterness and the anger in his heart from the abuse that he suffered. So if taken from a worm's eye view, Joseph should be whining a lot. He should complain. He should be sort of moping and self-pity all the time. And, you know, if there was ever a person to have like a whiny, grumbly attitude, it's Joseph, isn't it? I mean, man, tough run, But that's not how Joseph is looking at this. That's not what he's saying. Joseph, Waltke says, chooses the heavenly perspective that God is working through him to bring about what is good. And so I ask you, how do you view your life? Do you take a worm's eye view? See all of things kind of in relation and forget that there is this gracious God that's holding your life and orchestrating your life. If you take the heavenly perspective, if you are operating out of a worm's eye view of your life, the fruit of that is anxiousness, irritation, pouting, despairing. But what God invites us to is to be lifted up out of that and to trust the promises of God. And that kind of trust, when you're doing that, when you're living life kind of with a heaven perspective, not a worm's eye view, a heavenly perspective, God's eye view, it gives you this supernatural resilience. I mean, Joseph, even in the pit, I'm not, you might say, well, of course, he's, he's the king of the land. How could he not be happy? I mean, things have got, he's been pretty good to him. No, but when he was a prisoner, he was being faithful to God. When he was a slave, he was, he was rejecting the advances of Potiphar's wife and being faithful to God. He was encouraging the inmates in prison. He's shown nothing but trust in the Lord. And we're commanded to be like Joseph, to give thanks always in all circumstances, to recognize that God is with us. We're in his care, and it may, seem, it may be impossible to discern how that is true. And that's, that's what faith is, isn't it? Trusting in things you can't discern or see. But God's care is upon us, and he's with us. And that creates a resilience, the kind of resilience that we see in Joseph. Now, I want us to see something very important that happens here in this reveal, and it's really going to help us understand this whole ruse. That's been going on. And that is, Joseph has a mission that he is undergoing, and that is to see if reconciliation is possible with his brothers. And there's a distinction here to be made between forgiveness and reconciliation. He Joseph forgave his brothers. He's already done that. Do you remember what he named his son before they even showed up? Remember what he named his son, Manasseh? He said. God has made me forget of all of my hardships in my father's household. All of my bitterness, all of my anger, I've forgiven them. And I'm naming my son Manasseh to prove it. That was what that name meant. I forgive my family. He's forgiven them. But it's a whole other step to achieve reconciliation with those that, you, that have sinned against you. Or those that you have sinned against. Reconciliation is a two-way street. Maybe some of us have relationships that are not reconciled. You think, well, what, what, what do I need to do? Some of you are bearing the weight. You say, you know, I've forgiven them, but you have guilt because you're not reconciled to them. Well, it's not in your power to bring about reconciliation in their life, necessarily. That's something you pray for. We are called to forgive, but to reconcile the relationships, a whole other step that takes the other party's involvement. And that's what Joseph has been trying to discern. Have these brothers repented of what they've done to me? Are they ready for reconciliation? I forgive them regardless. But are they ready to, to, to be reconciled? Listen to what Dan Allender says. Forgiveness involves a heart that cancels the debt, but does not lend out new money until repentance occurs. Joseph is seeing through the portions to Benjamin, through Judah stepping and the brothers still loving him and marrying, being married with him at dinner. And through and through Judah's sacrifice, the one who was leading the charge and getting rid of Joseph now is giving his life for Benjamin, Joseph's other brother. He sees all of that and he, he's broken down. He loses control and he sees the way through to reconciliation and so he lifts the lid, he takes off the mask, and they're stunned. And he tells them, the brothers, go to Jacob. Tell him I am the Lord of Egypt, and come down quickly. This famine has just begun. There's five years left. I'm going to make a place for you. We're going to welcome you, and you're going to live here, and you guys are not just going to survive. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to flourish as best as one can in the midst of a famine. So bring everyone. We will survive. And then look at, look at chapter 45, verse 14. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept, wept upon his neck and he kissed all of his brothers and he wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked to him. Look at this scene. He hugs Benjamin, his full brother. He hugs his other brothers. They're weeping upon each other. They're weeping upon the, their, their, their necks as they cry and hug and embrace. Does this sound familiar? Students, does this sound like a familiar scene? This, uh, this is an interesting story, students. I, I was, I, I'm preparing for this in a hospital at times. Most of it got done in a hospital waiting room. And then, um, and then just throughout the week, I'm, I'm thinking about this, uh, this scene, this last verse, and I'm, I'm just trying to figure out, like, what's going on here? I mean, I understand what's going on, right? This is like a reunion. It's, their hearts are being melted. But what's going on? And then Thursday night, for, for those, I'm talking to students, but the youth camp was a great week, as Nathan alluded to. And... On Thursday night, the last night that we were there, uh, the worship leaders, even before this all started kind of unfolding, I, I, I personally felt very struck by the love of God and had this thought to myself, God's love is real. God really does love us. That just, it just felt palpable to me. And, 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 then, and then the worship leader invited the kids to respond in prayer, to pray and give thanks to God. And people said things like this, God loves me. God forgives me. I can't believe that he forgives me, but he does. And, and God, I, I don't have to be, feel shame. And, and, and as that evening rolled on, people started crying. They were weeping. They weren't sad. They were, they were they joyous. And the thing I kept hearing from everybody is, God loves me. It's, it's really true. God loves me. And they begin to hug each other. They're weeping on the necks of one another relationships that maybe were, had been distant or aloof or not really reconciled for a while. We're hugging each other, saying, I'm sorry. These are all the things. So, so what happened? What happened that night, students? We confronted the love of God. That's what grace and that's that's the hope. That's grace's wiles. It has this power to break us down. It has the power to change us. This is the grace of God to sinners. And here's the thing, this whole story, I said this whole Bible coheres, right? This whole story is a beautiful story of Christ. Isn't it incredible how it anticipates the story of Christ? Jesus' father, Judah, he comes from the line of Judah, steps in, says, my life for an undeserving father and brother, just as Jesus steps in and says, my life for an undeserving world. Joseph, his graciousness, rejected by his brothers, just as Jesus was rejected by his brothers, left for dead, and through, through Joseph's sufferings is lifted, exalted, and in a position not just to save his family, but to save the whole world. Jesus, rejected by his brothers through his suffering, is exalted and is a position to save not just the people of Israel, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. This whole story anticipates the story of, of of our salvation, the story of the gospel. And this grace of God is powerful enough to crack open what Anthony Esselin calls the hardest material in the universe, the human heart. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your grace. Help us to bathe in the waters of your love, as, as Jonathan Edwards said, as we as we reminded ourselves at the beginning of the service. We, we thank you that we have means, many means, of receiving a sense of your love. And so help us to do that as we uh, come to the table. We pray in Christ's name, amen.